Section 18 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Bennett. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. Section 18, Discoveries in the Interior, 1860-1886 to 1 Burke and Wills In the year 1860, a merchant of Melbourne offered a thousand pounds for the furtherance of discovery in Australia. The Royal Society of Victoria undertook to organise an expedition for the purpose of crossing the continent, and collected subscriptions to the amount of £3,400. The Victorian government voted £6,000, and spent an additional sum of £3,000 in bringing 26 camels from Arabia. Under an energetic committee of the Royal Society, the most complete arrangements were made. Robert O'Hara Burke was chosen as leader, Landals was second in command, with special charge of the camels, for which three Hindu drivers were also provided. W. J. Wills, an accomplished young astronomer, was sent to take charge of the costly instruments and make all the scientific observations. There were two other scientific men and eleven subordinates, with twenty-eight horses to assist in transporting the baggage. On the 20th of August, 1860, the long train of laden camels and horses set out from the Royal Park of Melbourne, Burke heading the procession on a little grey horse. The mayor made a short speech, wishing him Godspeed. The explorers shook hands with their friends, and amid the ringing cheers of thousands of spectators, the long and picturesque line moved forward. The journey as far as the Murrumbidgee lay through settled country, and was without incident. But on the banks of that river, quarrelling began among the party, and Burke dismissed the foreman. Landles then resigned, and Wills was promoted to be second in command. Burke committed a great error in his choice of a man to take charge of the camels in place of Landles. On a sheep station, he met with a man named Wright, who made himself very agreeable. The two were soon great friends, and Burke, whose generosity was unchecked by any prudence, gave to this utterly unqualified person an important charge in the expedition. On leaving the Murrumbidgee, they ascended the Darling, till they reached Menindi, the place from which Sturt had set out sixteen years before. Here Burke left Wright with half the expedition, intending himself to push on rapidly and to be followed up more leisurely by Wright. Burke and Wills, with six men and half the camels and horses, set off through a very miserable country, not altogether barren, but covered with a kind of pea which poisoned the horses. A rapid journey brought them to the banks of Cooper's Creek, where they found fine pastures and plenty of water. Here they formed a depot, and lived for some time waiting for Wright, who, however, did not appear. 
the horses and camels by this rest improved greatly in condition and the party were in capital quarters but burke grew tired of waiting and as he was now near the centre of australia he determined to make a bold dash across to the gulf of carpentaria he left one of his men called brae and three assistants with six camels and twelve horses giving them instructions to remain for three months and if within that time he did not return they might consider him lost and would then be at liberty to return to menindee on the sixteenth december burke and wills along with two men named king and gray started on their perilous journey taking with them six camels and one horse which carried provisions to last for three months two rapid journey to gulf of carpentaria they followed the broad current of cooper's creek for some distance and then struck off to the north till they reached a stream which they called air creek from this they obtained abundant supplies of water and therefore kept along its banks till it turned to the eastward then abandoning it they marched due north keeping along the one hundred and fortieth meridian through forests of boxwood alternating with plains well watered and richly covered with grass six weeks after leaving cooper's creek they came upon a fine stream flowing north to which they gave the name cloncurry and by following its course they found that it entered a large river on whose banks they were delighted to perceive the most luxuriant vegetation and frequent clusters of palm trees they felt certain that its waters flowed into the gulf of carpentaria and therefore by keeping close to it they had nothing to fear but they had brought only three months provisions with them more than half of that time had now elapsed and they were still a hundred and fifty miles from the sea burke now lost no time but hurried on so fast that one after another the camels sank exhausted and when they had all succumbed burke and wills took their only horse to carry a small quantity of provisions and leaving gray and king behind set out by themselves on foot they had to cross several patches of swampy ground and the horse becoming inextricably bogged was unable to go further but still burke and wills hurried on by themselves till they reached a narrow inlet on the gulf of carpentaria and found that the river they had been following was the flinders whose mouth had been discovered by captain stokes in eighteen forty two they were very anxious to view the open sea but this would have required another couple of days and their provisions were already exhausted they were therefore obliged to hasten back as quickly as possible the pangs of hunger overtook them before they could reach the place where king and gray had remained with the provisions burke killed a snake and ate a part of it but he felt very ill immediately after and when at length they reached the provisions he wasn't able to go forward so quickly as it was necessary to do if they wished to be safe however they recovered the horse and camels which had been greatly refreshed by their rest and by taking easy stages they managed to move south towards home 
but their hurried journey to the north in which they had traversed beneath a tropical sun about a hundred and forty miles every week had told severely on their constitutions gray became ill and it was now necessary to be so careful with the provisions that he had little chance of regaining his lost strength one evening after they had come to a halt he was found sitting behind a tree eating a little mixture he had made for himself of flour and water burke said he was stealing the provisions fell upon him and gave him a severe thrashing he seems after this never to have rallied whilst the party moved forward he was slowly sinking towards the end of march their provisions began to fail they killed a camel dried its flesh and then went forward at the beginning of april this was gone and they killed their horse gray now lay down saying he could not go on burke said he was shamming and left him however the gentler counsel of wills prevailed they returned and brought him forward but he could only go a little farther the poor fellow breathed his last a day or two after and was buried in the wilderness burke now regretted his harshness all the more as he himself was quickly sinking all three indeed were utterly worn out they were thin and haggard and so weak that they tottered rather than walked along the last few miles were very very weary but at last on the twenty first of april they came in sight of the depot four months and a half after leaving it great was their alarm on seeing no sign of people about the place and as they staggered forward to the spot at sunset their hearts sank within them when they saw a notice stating that bray had left that very morning he would be then only seven hours march away the three men looked at one another in blank dismay but they were so worn out that they could not possibly move forward with any hope of overtaking the fresh camels of bray's party on looking round however they saw the word dig cut on a neighbouring tree and when they turned up the soil they found a small supply of provisions bray had remained a month and a half longer than he had been told to wait and as his own provisions were fast diminishing and there seemed as yet to be no signs of right with the remainder of the expedition he thought it unsafe to delay his return any longer this man wright was the cause of all the disasters that ensued instead of following closely on burke he had loitered at menindi for no less than three months and one week amusing himself with his friends and when he did set out he took things so leisurely that bray was halfway back to the darling before they met three sufferings on the evening when they entered the depot burke wills and king made a hearty supper then for a couple of days they stretched their stiff and weary limbs at rest but inaction was dangerous for even with the greatest expedition their provisions would only serve to take them safely to the darling they now began to deliberate as to their future course burke wished to go to adelaide because at mount hopeless 
where air had been forced to turn back in 1840, there was now a large sheep station, and he thought it could not be more than 150 miles away. Wills was strongly averse to this proposal. It is true, he said, Menindee is 350 miles away, but then we know the road and are sure of water all the way. But Burke was not to be persuaded, and they set out for Mount Hopeless. Following Cooper's Creek for many miles, they entered a region of frightful barrenness. Here, as one of the camels became too weak to go farther, they were forced to kill it and to dry its flesh. Still they followed the creek, till at last it spread itself into marshy thickets and was lost. They then made a halt, and found they had scarcely any provisions left, while their clothes were rotten and falling to pieces. Their only chance was to reach Mount Hopeless speedily. They shot their last camel, and while Burke and King were drying its flesh, Will struck out to find Mount Hopeless. But no one knew which way to look for it, and Wills, after laboriously traversing the dry and barren wastes in all directions, came back unsuccessful. A short rest was taken, and then the whole party turned southward, determined this time to reach the mount. But they were too weak to travel fast. Day after day over these dreary plains and still no sign of a hill, till at length, when they were within fifty miles of Mount Hopeless, they gave in. Had they only gone but a little farther, they would have seen the summit of the mountain rising upon the horizon. But just at this point they lost hope and turned to go back. After a weary journey, they once more reached the fresh water and the grassy banks of Cooper's Creek, but now with provisions for only a day or two. They sat down to consider their position, and Burke said he had heard that the natives of Cooper's Creek lived chiefly on the seed of a plant which they called Nardu, so that if they could only find a native tribe, they might perhaps learn to find sufficient subsistence from the soil around them. Accordingly, Burke and King set out to seek a native encampment, and having found one, they were kindly received by the blacks, who very willingly showed them how to gather the little black seeds from a kind of grass which grows close to the ground. With this information they returned to Wills, and as the Nardu seed was abundant, they began at once to gather it but they found that through want of skill they could scarcely obtain enough for two meals a day by working from morning till night, and when evening came they had to clean, roast and grind it, and besides this, whatever it might have been to the blacks, to them it was by no means nutritious. It made them sick and gave them no strength. Whilst they were thus dwelling on the lower part of Cooper's Creek, several miles away from the depot, Rye had returned to find them and bring them relief. On his way home he had met with Wright leisurely coming up, and had hastened back with him to the depot, but when they reached it they saw no signs of Burke and Wills, 
although the unfortunate explorers had been there only a few days before. Bray, therefore, concluded that they were dead, and once more set out for home. Meanwhile, Burke thought it possible that a relief party might in this way have reached the creek, and Wills volunteered to go to the depot to see if anyone was there. He set out by himself, and after journeying three or four days reached the place, but only to find it still and deserted. He examined it carefully, but could see no trace of its having been recently visited. There could be no advantage in remaining, and he turned back to share the doom of his companions. He now began to endure fearful pangs from hunger. One evening he entered an encampment that had just been abandoned by the natives, and around the fire there there were some fish bones which he greedily picked. Next day he saw two small fish floating dead upon a pool, and they made a delicious feast. But in spite of these stray morsels, he was rapidly sinking from hunger, when suddenly he was met by a native tribe. The black men were exceedingly kind. One carried his bundle for him, another supported his feeble frame, and gently they led the gaunt and emaciated white man to their camp. They made him sit down and gave him a little food. While he was eating, he saw a great quantity of fish on the fire. For a few minutes, he wondered if all these could possibly be for him, till at length they were cooked and the plentiful repast was placed before him. The natives then gathered round and clapped their hands with delight when they saw him eat heartily. He stayed with them for four days, and then set out to bring his friends to enjoy likewise this simple hospitality. It took him some days to reach the place where he had left them, but when they heard his good news they lost no time in seeking their native benefactors. Yet on account of their weakness they travelled very slowly, and when they reached the encampment it was deserted. They had no idea whither the natives had gone. They struggled a short distance further, their feebleness overcame them, and they were forced to sink down in despair. All day they toiled hard to prepare Nardu's seed, but their small strength could not provide enough to support them. Once or twice they shot a crow, but such slight repasts served only to prolong their sufferings. Wills, throughout all his journeyings, had kept a diary, but now the entries became very short. In the struggle for life there was no time for such duties, and the grim fight with starvation required all their strength. At this time Wills records that he cannot understand why his legs are so weak. He has bathed them in the stream, but finds them no better and he can hardly crawl out of the hut. His next entry is that unless relief comes shortly, he cannot last more than a fortnight. After this, his mind seems to have begun to wander. He makes frequent and unusual blunders in his diary. 
The last words he wrote were that he was waiting, like Mr. Micawber, for something to turn up, and that, though starving on Nardu seed was by no means unpleasant, yet he would prefer to have a little fat and sugar mixed with it. 4. Death of Burke and Wills Burke now thought that their only chance was to find the blacks, and proposed that he and King should set out for that purpose. They were very loath to leave Wills, but under the circumstances no other course was possible. They laid him softly within the hut, and placed at his head enough of Nardu to last him for eight days. Wills asked Burke to take his watch and a letter he had written for his father. The two men pressed his hands, smoothed his couch tenderly for the last time, and set out. There, in the utter silence of the wilderness, the dying man lay for a day or two. No ear heard his last sigh, but his end was as gentle as his life had been free from reproach. Burke and King walked out on their desperate errand. On the first day they traversed a fair distance, but on the second they had not proceeded two miles when Burke lay down, saying he could go no further. King entreated him to make another effort, and so he dragged himself to a little clump of bushes, where he stretched his limbs very wearily. An hour or two afterwards he was stiff and unable to move. He asked King to take his watch and pocket-book, and if possible to give them to his friends in Melbourne. Then he begged of him not to depart till he was quite dead. He knew he should not live long, and he should like someone to be near him to the last. He spoke with difficulty, but directed King not to bury him, but to let him lie above the ground with a pistol in his right hand. They passed a weary and lonesome night, and in the morning, at eight o'clock, Burke's restless life was ended. King wandered for some time forlorn, but by good fortune he stumbled upon an abandoned encampment where, by neglect, the blacks had left a bag of nardu, sufficient to last him a fortnight, and with this he hastened back to the hut where Wills had been laid. All he could do now, however, was to dig a grave for his body in the sand. And having performed that last sad duty, he set out once more on his search, and found a tribe, differing from that which he had already seen. They were very kind, but not anxious to keep him until, having shot some birds and cured their chief of a malady, he was found to be of some use, and soon became a great favourite with them. They made a trip to the body of Burke, but respecting his last wishes they did not seek to bury it, and merely covered it gently with a layer of leafy boughs. 5. Relief Parties When Wright and Bray returned to Victoria, with the news that though it was more than five months since Burke and Wills had left Cooper's Creek, there were no signs of them at the depot. All the colonies showed their solicitude by organising parties to go to the relief of the explorers, if perchance they should be still alive. Victoria was the first in the field, and the Royal Society equipped a small party, 
under Mr. A. W. Howard to examine the banks of Cooper's Creek. Queensland offered £500 to assist in the search, and with this sum an expedition was sent to examine the Gulf of Carpentaria. Landsborough, its leader, was conveyed in the Victoria steamer to the Gulf, and followed the Albert almost to its source, in hopes that Burke and Wills might be dwelling with the natives on that stream. Walker was sent to cross from Rockhampton to the Gulf of Carpentaria. He succeeded in reaching the Flinders River, where Burke and Wills had been, but of course he saw nothing of them. McKinley was sent by South Australia to advance in the direction of Lake Torrens and reach Cooper's Creek. These various expeditions were all eager in prosecuting the search, but it was to Mr. Howitt's party that success fell. In following the course of Cooper's Creek downward from the depot, he saw the tracks of camels, and by these he was led to the district in which Burke and Wills had died. Several natives whom he met brought him to the place where beneath a native hut King was sitting, pale, haggard, and wasted to a shadow. He was so weak that it was with difficulty Howard could catch the feeble whispers that fell from his lips, but a day or two of European food served slightly to restore his strength. Howitt then proceeded to the spot where the body of Wills was lying partly buried, and after reading over it a short service, he interred it decently. Then he sought the thicket where the bones of Burke lay, with the rusted pistol beside them, and having wrapped a Union Jack around them, he dug a grave for them hard by. Three days later the blacks were summoned, and their eyes brightened at the sight of knives, tomahawks, necklaces, looking-glasses, and so forth, which were bestowed upon them in return for their kindness to King. Gay pieces of ribbon were fastened round the black heads of the children, and the whole tribe moved away rejoicing in the possession of fifty pounds of sugar, which had been divided among them. When Howitt and King returned, and the sad story of the expedition was related, the Victorian government sent a party to bring the remains of Burke and Wells to Melbourne, where they received the melancholy honours of a public funeral amid the general mourning of the whole colony. In after years, a statue was raised to perpetuate their heroism and testify to the esteem with which the nation regarded their memory. 6. MacDool Stewart Burke and Wills were the first who ever crossed the Australian continent, but for several years before they set out, another traveller had, with wonderful perseverance, repeatedly attempted this feat. John MacDool Stewart had served as draughtsman in Sturt's expedition to the Stony Desert, and he had been well trained in that school of adversity and sufferings. He was employed in 1859 by a number of squatters who wished him to explore for them new lands in South Australia, and having found a passage between Lake Eyre and Lake Torrens, he discovered, beyond the deserts which had so much disheartened Eyre, a broad district of fine pastoral land. Next year, the South Australian government offered £2,000 as a reward 
to the first person who should succeed in crossing Australia from south to north, and Stuart set out from Adelaide to attempt the exploit. With only two men, he travelled to the north, towards Van Diemen's Gulf, and penetrated much further than Sturt had done in 1844. Indeed, he was only 400 miles from the other side of Australia when the hostility of the blacks forced him to return. He succeeded, however, in planting a flag in the centre of the continent, at a place called by him Central Mount Stewart. Next year he was again in the field, and following exactly the same course, approached very near to Van Diemen's Gulf, being no more than 250 miles distant from its shores, when want of provisions forced him once more to return. The report of this expedition was sent to Burke and Wills, just before they set out from Cooper's Creek on their fatal trip to the Gulf of Carpentaria. It was not until the following year, 1862, that Stuart succeeded in his purpose. He had the perseverance to start a third time and follow his former route, and on this occasion he was successful in reaching Van Diemen's Gulf and returned safely, after having endured many sufferings and hardships. His triumphal entry into Adelaide took place on the very day when Howard's mournful party entered that city, bearing the remains of Burke and Wills on their way to Melbourne. Stuart then learnt that these brave explorers had anticipated him in crossing the continent, for they had reached the Gulf of Carpentaria in February 1861, whilst he did not arrive at Van Diemen's Gulf until July 1862. However, Stuart had shown so great a courage and had been twice before so near the completion of his task that everyone was pleased when the South Australian government gave him the well-merited reward. 7. Warburton. In a subsequent chapter, it will be told how a line of telegraph was, in 1872, constructed along the track followed by Stuart, and as the stations connected with this line are numerous, it is now an easy matter to cross the continent from south to north. But in recent years, a desire has arisen among the adventurers to journey overland from east to west. Warburton, in 1873, made a successful trip of this kind. With his son, two men, and two Afghans to act as drivers of his 17 camels, he started from Alice Springs, a station on the telegraph line close to the Tropic of Capricorn. The country immediately round Alice Springs was very beautiful, but a journey of only a few days served to bring the expedition into a dry and barren plain, so desolate that Warburton declared it could never be traversed without the assistance of camels. After travelling about 400 miles, he reached those formidable ridges of fiery red sand in which the waters of Sturt's Creek are lost, and where A.C. Gregory was in 1856 compelled to turn back. In traversing this district, the party suffered many hardships. Only two out of 17 camels survived, 
and the men were themselves frequently on the verge of destruction. It was only by exercising the greatest care and prudence that Warburton succeeded in bringing his party to the Okover River on the northwest coast, and when he arrived once more in Adelaide, it was found that he had completely lost the sight of one eye. 8. Giles and Forrest Towards the close of the same year, 1873, a young Victorian named Giles started on a similar trip, intending to cross from the middle of the telegraph line to West Australia. He held his course courageously to the west, but the country was of such appalling barrenness that after penetrating halfway to the western coast, he was forced to abandon the attempt and return. But when, three years afterwards, he renewed his efforts, he succeeded, after suffering much and making long marches without water. He had more than one encounter with the natives, but he had the satisfaction of crossing from the telegraph line to the West Australian coast, through country never before traversed by the foot of civilised man. In 1874, this region was successfully crossed by Forrest, a government surveyor of West Australia, who started from Geraldton to the south of Shark Bay, and after a journey of 1,200 miles almost due east, succeeded in reaching the telegraph line. His entry into Adelaide was like a triumphal march, so great were the crowds that went out to escort him to the city. Forrest was then a young man, but a most skilful and sagacious traveller. Lightly equipped and accompanied by only one or two companions, he has on several occasions performed long journeys through the most formidable country with a celerity and success that are indeed surprising. His brother, Alexander Forrest, and a long list of bold and skilful bushmen have succeeded in traversing the continent in every direction. It is not all desert. They have found fine tracts of land in the course of their journeys. Indeed, more than half of the recently explored regions are suitable for sheep and cattle, but there are other great districts which are miserable and forbidding. However, thanks to the heroic men whose names have been mentioned, and to such others as the Jardine brothers, Ernest Favenck, Goss, and the Baron von Müller, almost the whole of Australia is now explored. Only a small part of South Australia and the central part of West Australia remain unknown. We all of us owe a great debt of gratitude to the men who endured so much to make known to the world the capabilities of our continent. End of section 18